This is the BioBusters Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 40. Recorded 40. on 40, right? Recorded wow. on Wednesday, the 2nd of June, 2021. Hello, folks. Welcome back to another fantastic episode of the BioBusters. I am Delbert. I am hanging out with Chris Fawner and Chris Keller. How are you guys doing? Good. I consider hanging out like actually in person. This is more kind of detached and electronic, but I guess we're still kind of hanging out. This is the new hanging out. It I is. know, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, and and this is how we're going to have to hang exactly. out from here yeah. moving forward because somebody has to, you know. Has to move. Has to move. Right. Has As to move. For those listeners that don't know, uh, I am transferring to the Florida Bradenton LECOM campus. Very excited about that. I am, however, not super excited about leaving my awesome, eerie family behind. But uh, in today's age, technology, etc., we're all going to stay in touch and keep That's producing true. BioBusters. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, awkward silence there. <laughs> all right, we didn't so, have a good segue planned for that. <laughs> perfect. So June 2nd. Uh, we have wow. a nice birthday today. Uh, I mean, yeah, June 2nd. June 2nd. Yeah, let's get that right this time. <laughs> Last time we got the birthday wrong. <laughs> uh, it's Eric Voice, born uh, 2nd of June 1924 and died at the age of 80 uh, on September 11th, 2004. He was an English nuclear scientist who volunteered to ingest just a little bit of plutonium. Beautiful idea. As part of a European research to track plutonium in the body's metabolism. He was one of 12 volunteers aged 26 to 67 who were injected with plutonium between 1992 and 98. Is that, I mean, that's in the 90s, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, not like this was like eagle. Yeah, I really thought this was going to be. Oh, this took well, place in like the fifties or sixties. But when I read that again, the nineties volunteered. 90s. Volunteered. <laughs> yes, I will in, eat your nasty, nasty radioactive material. But it was pretty minuscule, right? It was. It was a, a minute amount. amount obviously. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, hey, listen. He lived to eighty. So obviously, it didn't significantly affect him. And they, they measured a few different things concerning the uh, isotope of plutonium that he ingested, right? Right. So in 1999, at age 73, he volunteered again to inhale plutonium for further study. <laughs> the minuscule dose was a soluble compound of plutonium-237, which he regarded as having little risk, and he remained in good health. Sensitive detectors measured how much and where plutonium was retained, in which organs... How quickly was it expelled? Uh, he was one of the first Western scientists to visit Chernobyl after the explosion, and he did die of unrelated natural causes. Not See, that's even more fascinating to me. You know, one of the first part of the team of Western scientists going over there after the explosion in 86, and just how a lot of those first responders there, right, like the firefighters, yep. the scientists, the, you know, Russian, I guess, I don't know, politicians or correspondents who went over there, a lot of them got sick pretty quickly. So the fact and that he made sick. it, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the fact that he made it, what, almost 20 years later and died yeah. of unrelated causes, 
Hey, uh, he there's got a uh, series of you were telling me about it, Fauna, right? You were saying like I should watch it. I forget the name. There's a series on that. Uh, yeah, it's on HBO. It's just called Chernobyl. And I remember at the time last year looking at the accuracies, inaccuracies, what was dramatized versus not. And I think it was pretty faithful, at least according to you know what records are available. But I believe the Russians were not very happy with how their side was portrayed. And now oh, I think coming, they were pissed. Yeah, they yeah. said that they were kind of come out with their own, own series or whatever, yeah. which I'm pretty sure is not going to. Well, instead, they, they're hacking everything. So no, they're too yeah, busy to come out with that lot series. Of, uh, most likely. A lot of cyber attacks this week. And, Today, yeah, uh, a lot. And Beef? I think uh, part of the reason they may be increasing is because the, um, that oil sure. company paid the ransom. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, Keller, tell us about your uh, video background. Absolutely. So, looks like a snake. It does right here. We're looking right there and you can see it looks like a snake all curled up in a little a little seed pod if you will. It's this is actually a muscle tissue biopsy from a patient that had Go ahead. Oh, trichinella spiralis. Yes, this is a patient with trichinosis. It's a parasite. It's a little worm and uh, typically this little worm is in, found in pigs. In this country, however, interestingly enough, it's undercooked or really raw. Bear meat is the number one way to ingest this parasite. Once it's ingested, the uh, this is a little larval worm. It'll it'll mate. Uh, it become female and male worms mate, and the eggs are laid. Little larval worms hatch, and those crawl through your body. And as you see here, this is an encysted larval worm in the muscle tissue, just waiting for somebody to eat this person. And that would continue the transmission cycle. So now it's um, bear meat, right? But it used to be pork. Used to be pork. And uh, it's been wild game for for years. So pork, uh, interestingly enough, the CDC did a a worldwide study on the the most common food sources. And it, it does depend on... Uh, a, a country's diet, for example, in um, in Alaska, it's undercooked walrus meat. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, in France, the number one route of transmission? Horse. It is horse. <laughs> and in uh, England? Uh, I don't know. Cow? Can no. you bring your dog on the show? I don't know. I'm <laughs> kind of looking and trying to mentally tell Kayla that, hey, we need help here. Hold on. I'm texting right now. There's a special guest right now, but he's going to shut up pretty soon. Oh, well, I'd like to see him. Fox. He's not Fox. coming in here. Okay. Fox. Good. Interesting enough. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in this country, it's bear. But uh, it, it's just, I found that a very interesting study. In, in, in different countries, it's different food sources. Yeah. And we'll end with the name of the parasite because I used to teach metterm and I love this kind of stuff. Trichinella spiralis mm-hmm. technically means small hair, spiral, small hair, because the parasite is very it's, fine and thin and can fit inside a muscle cell. And it can. All right. Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Keller. Absolutely. Let's, where are we coronavirus-wise? So I think... Uh, at least in the U.S., with the vaccination effort uh, that's looking 
right now, at least one dose, uh, roughly around 51% of the population, 12 and up, because now we can vaccinate 12 and up with Pfizer. Moderna is still working on their emergency FDA. I think they'll get approved. Mm -hmm. uh, 12 and up is 60%, 18 and up 63%, fully vaccinated in the US around 41%, 12 and up 49, 18 and up 52. Global vaccination effort at total doses of close to 2 billion, 1.98 billion. I think in the US between the at least one dose and the uh, fully vaccinated and the have had it, have antibody that are protective, I think we are over 70%. And the numbers have been dramatically going down in the U.S. in terms of daily doses and uh, number of total daily deaths. However, and even like the cases, like reported cases yeah, too, yeah. right? I think they're uh, the, did I read they're the lowest right now than they have been in over a year, like in terms of the incidence rate? Yeah, we're pretty much in terms of numbers where, daily numbers where we were at the beginning of the pandemic, right? It's great news. And uh, that is definitely good news. 14-day uh, uh, average for deaths is uh, around 500 now. So that's mm -hmm. that's fantastic. It looks like uh, hopefully by the end of the summer going into the fall, even now with restrictions easing up and what PA's restrictions are pretty lax now after Memorial Day, right? Is it full capacity now? Most places don't really need a mask if you're vaccinated. Um, it seems like, I mean, they're already planning concerts down in Pittsburgh. I know that, like Stage AE yep. and near Heinz Field. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's coming back slowly but surely. Now, keep in mind, some businesses are not following mm -hmm. those still. I mean, it, it, where we work, we're still wearing a mask. I know right. I went to get groceries at Giant Eagle. They still have a mask policy. Mm -hmm. So Do they? I was, uh, did I wear my mask? Well, yeah, I may have. Okay, I, I forgot. At least yeah. last week. Yeah, yeah, last week. So. That's what I meant. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of places... Uh, kind of back to normal. Uh, in some states, obviously, they were there before uh, other states. But, you know, I, I think nationwide, personally, I think we're, obviously, there are still people getting sick and dying, right? Mm -hmm. But I think personally, uh, in the US, I think we're definitely we have, turning a corner. We have to be well above 70%. I'm just looking at the numbers yeah. Yeah. reported here. 18 and up, 63% had at least one dose. But let's go with the 12 and up, 60%. And then you're talking about cases, 172 million people. Now, sure. In the so U.S., 34 million. Yeah, so 10% of the population. Okay. Yeah, in the yeah, U.S., okay. 34 so, million. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and we're, so we're up there. We're up there. And think about all the people that we know had asymptomatic infections and yeah. and didn't get diagnosed. That's That's got to be even more than yeah. 10%. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing we're getting close to 80%. Yeah, we're up there. I think we are uh, very close to uh, herd immunity, depending on what, where, where yeah. you define that number, right? Well, I don't think we're going to know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's still too new. You know, we're going to need some population statistics to figure that out. Yeah. All right. Let us move on to this week's or this episode's scientific study. We had a post on uh, Instagram about uh, about that a, a few a, a week or so back, and uh, yep. this is this is about the new uh, malaria vaccine. And we are lucky to have Dr. Keller with us because he does his PhD on malaria, and long uh, time ago, <laughs> <laughs> and is the in-house resident expert. So, 
uh, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, uh, study, and then uh, we'll pick uh, we'll pick Keller's brain about uh, the disease and uh, its effects. So, uh, the uh, and I want to caution uh, our, our listeners that this is a, a study that is currently in preprint, meaning that it has uh, uh, it is currently going through the peer reviewed process, right? So it has not yet been published in a peer reviewed journal, right? This is a preprint uh, article. Uh, so but the name it, of- it has been peer reviewed though, it just hasn't been published yet. It hasn't been published, but it's it's in peer review, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, those, those, those are not peer reviewed. Yeah. So it, it is undergoing peer review at the moment. Okay. Uh, that's that, important. As far, uh, as far as I know. Uh, so it is high. The title is high efficacy of a low dose candidate malaria vaccine, which is called R21 in one adjuvant matrix M with seasonal administration to children in Burkina Faso. So malaria, Dr. Kyle will tell us about it, severe disease, et cetera. But so far, in terms of vaccine effort, the most effective vaccine to date has been approximately 56 or so percent in efficacy rate. It hasn't really gone over that 75% mark. Some are a little bit higher than that. But uh, going over that 75% mark that the World Health Organization says is needed in children populations for uh, herd immunity, there hasn't been a vaccine that does that. So this study, they had a double blind study, meaning that both the participants and the researchers had no idea what, uh, whether the uh, 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 patients were receiving the placebo or the vaccine, right? Right. That's what double blind means. It was randomized, meaning that they were assigned to either or groups, controlled meaning that there was a group that did not receive the malaria vaccine. And for this study, they recruited children aged five to 17 months in uh, Burkina Faso. And uh, the vaccine was made of this uh, adjuvant and an adjuvant is simply sort of a, a chemical that can induce innate adaptive, stronger innate and, and uh, adaptive immune responses. And this adjuvant is called Matrix M, and it has been tested before uh, and has a very good safety profile. And the uh, protein that they vaccinated against was a circumsporozoid protein, which is a, a, a plasmodium with a parasite protein from the pre-erythrocytic stage, so before the parasite enters red blood cells. And they had three vaccine groups in this case. The control group received a rabies vaccine. Uh, the uh, malaria group received uh, two, uh, two groups for the malaria vaccine. One was a high-dose adjuvant, one was a low-dose adjuvant, and they both received the same concentration of, of malaria protein. And they gave three vaccinations uh, four weeks apart and a fourth vaccine a year later. And then they looked at vaccine safety, immunogenicity, efficacy, efficacy, and it was evaluated both at six months after that last third vac- vaccination and a, a, a year later uh, after that final dose. So they had 100, a total of 450 children randomized to all of these groups at six months uh, after uh, the uh, uh, third dose 
they uh, looked at how percentage of these uh, children vaccinated or controlled that ended up with uh, malaria. And those that had a low adjuvant, uh, low dose adjuvant, 29.5% ended up developing clinical malaria with a high dose adjuvant, 26%. With the rabies vaccine, which is the control in this study, 71.4% of the participants developed clinical malaria. In terms of vaccine efficacy, that was calculated at 74% for the low adjuvant group, 77% for the high dose adjuvant group. And at one year, and this is, this is a good, good thing sort of to keep in mind, at one year after uh, uh, vaccine administration, the efficacy remained high at 77%. Uh, percent. And the reason this got a lot of media attention, media sensation, is because the reported efficacy rate went over that 75% vaccine efficacy that the World Health Organization uh, has set for a goal for a target population of, of African children, right? So in that regard, uh, this is, I mean, this is uh, a, a exciting news. Yes especially with that target group of children, which malaria hits very significantly and very harshly. Yeah, which, uh, which, which segues quite nicely into, into color. So uh, if, if we can get sort of like a malaria background, maybe morbidity, mortality, uh, impact on development, sort of economic impact, and maybe hit up a little bit on that. Why is it important that they did this study in children, right? Like in terms of uh, 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 yeah. passing that, you know, childhood age with malaria, then you're good for life, et cetera. But okay, so take it away. Yeah, well, thank you. So, you know, keep in mind, this isn't the first vaccine that was ever tested for malaria. And uh, it, it, it's really, I, I want to talk about before all of everything you, you said, why is it so hard to get a vaccine? I mean, that was, that's kind of why they did the study. Yes, is exciting, but in order for a vaccine to work, specifically in children, we really need T-cell involvement. You need T-cells, you need isotype switching, you need that adaptive immunity. And uh, something that, it, it, it's an enigma really, but with malaria, it's, it, it, it really induces and suppresses your immune response at the same time. And so it, uh, you get really high fevers with malaria. I think most people know that. That's one of the hallmark signs are super duper high fevers, which are driven by uh, cytokines, which are, are, are inflammatory proteins that, uh, in this case, signal uh, an immune response. Uh, typically to extracellular pathogens. A lot of TNF-alpha levels, the highest we've ever seen are in kids with malaria. But at the same time, it suppresses T-cell function. And so you need those T-cells in order to make antibodies and, and, and make different types of antibodies. And it's, it actually turns those things off. And so that's what the adjuvant's really forced to turn those guys back on and, and get a very strong response. The reason this is really important is historically, malaria is, is the biggest killer of children worldwide. So in sub-Saharan Africa specifically, uh, there's different species of malaria and, and falciparum malaria, which is what this study was on, 
is 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 the most lethal and uh you know i i see the numbers here but it's hard to actually come up with true numbers because a lot of the kids that die from malaria are not going to be counted yeah and so we usually estimate annually one to three million kids are killed by malaria every year and these are usually kids uh, under the age of five and that's an estimate by the who uh and uh we that's an estimate now here the report from 2019 was um about 300 or, sorry, 200 million cases with 409,000 deaths okay but we estimate that at a, a lot higher burden and and not only is malaria impact childhood mortality but it also impacts uh morbidity as well so you know, kids kids would have growth delays because of um, chronic anemia. I know when I was in Africa, we'd see kids with hemoglobins less than than five grams per decilitre. That, that's super anemic. They're walking around with millions of parasites in their blood, and then they would end up, you know, having vascular collapse or, or a respiratory distress or something. And so there's there's a there's a lot of different developmental. Uh, impacts, and it depends on where you live. Uh, where where this study was done, it's a an area where there's a lot of transmission of malaria. You see that with the with the kids with rabies, seventy one percent of them are getting malaria within six months. That's a lot. Right. There's there's some areas where you see kids get malaria and they have uh, more cerebral complications, but it's less common. Uh, so and, you can, but, but more deadly oh, if it happens, right? It is the most deadly outcome. It is. Yeah. It is. Uh, myself, I'd be getting something like that, you know, where you don't have a lot of malaria, we tend to get uh, cerebral involvement. Uh, I, I can't even talk about the economic impact. I mean, it's, it's, it's astronomical. And it's one reason why uh, some of these countries have a hard time, um, you know, be, becoming more economically independent. And, and 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 you know for for a lot of those countries it isn't just the malaria right you have no, that God, tri- no. trifecta of intestinal parasites right sure it's, I mean it's it's filariasis a, yeah no. it's a huge disease burden right but the CDC estimates that the uh, direct cost for malaria is estimated to be at least twelve billion dollars per year so direct That's cost low. is like uh, cost of illness, treatment, premature death, et cetera. But the, yeah. the loss in economic growth and output is folds and folds above that. Yeah. Right? Keep in mind, you're killing children. You know, and, now with, and, and, and you know, we say parasitic diseases, but keep in mind, this is where HIV AIDS is rampant, the highest. This is the area where TB is high. And those two diseases kill more kids than malaria. And so it, it's really important to realize that, that the, the infectious disease burden in these areas is, is astronomical as well. Yeah. I do just real quick and then, and then we'll move on. Uh, there have been attempts at vaccines in the past. Uh, I'm not sure who did this study. Did you, did you look to see who did this study? I didn't. The, the one that we talked did, about. Yes. This one. Yeah. So uh, I did not put names in there because sure. as with most. How about the vac- school? Uh, it's the uh, main author is out of Oxford, England. Okay. So historically. Or, or the first author, but there's like 30, 40 people on there. There's, there's a lot. Sure. Oh yeah. What's well, the study like this? You're going to, that's like the human genome project. You know, <laughs> everybody, everybody wants a piece of this pie. Right. Right. 
um, you know, there, there is a vaccine that is 100% effective for a short term. And that is, uh, they took sporozoites. Now, sporozoites, and this is part, that's what they used here is part protein of the sporozoite. That's the form that's injected by the parasite or by the mosquito, excuse me. Uh, that's the form that goes to the liver and it stays there for a couple weeks to maybe a month, usually a couple weeks before it enters um, red blood cells, like like Delbert said, and causes disease. Uh, they irradiated sporozoites. Basically, they, they killed them, but but injected them into um, willing volunteers. And then that protected them from malaria. But it was very short-lived. It's unstable. You have to store it at special temperatures. And so it's not a real feasible vaccine, but it's 100%. You need boosters about once a month. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's not going to yeah. do it. Yeah. Whereas, uh, and then there is the FALVAC trials with um, the CDC uh, for falciparum vaccine and rhesus macaques that like you said, didn't get that level. And then the most recent one before this was out of Walter Reed. They, I remember that they called it the RTSS vaccine. Yeah, yeah. RTSS. We asked them what that meant. They said it, it stands for really top secret secret. So they wouldn't tell us what it was. <laughs> um, but it, it, it had the most efficacy until this. This is this is promising. Right. I used to tell everybody and my students that, uh, you know, there won't be a malaria vaccine in my lifetime. But uh, perhaps, perhaps I'll be proven wrong once again in a good way. So the RTSS, uh, unless I'm mistaken, is what in clinical phase three now, or is it past that? No, it's. I haven't seen anything come out on it yet. Yeah. So yeah. I know that because they tested that, I believe, in the Philippines or I'm Thailand. Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. But they, I know they tested that vaccine, and um, it, 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 this one is more impressive from the numbers. Well, part of the main challenge for a vaccine for a parasite like this is the very complicated life cycle, right? Mm-hmm. So the mosquito injects the one form of the parasite that goes to the liver, becomes a different form that goes to the red blood cells, multiplies, becomes a different form, right? So it's one of those things where... You may vaccinate them against one form of the parasite, but if the vaccine is 99% or your, or let's say it, it, one parasite escapes in the body of that form and then ends up in a different form, then it can still multiply, right? So it's, it's, a, challenging, it's a challenging thing for sure. What's also key is trying to find out where this thing hides, right? Uh, yeah. During different stages of the infection, during initial parts or stages of the infection, uh, that recent study that came out, they studied, um, I guess, the other form, Keller, or the other species. Vivax. Is that, yeah, Vivax. So the yeah, Plasmodium another, another Vivax. Species, yeah. Now, is that just a little bit less deadly? This this variant is still deadly, correct? It can be, okay. but not as deadly as falciparum malaria. Got it. But they stu- uh, this study examined um, P. vivax and found using MRI and PT imaging and fluorescently tagged glucose uptake that after the healthy volunteers were um, uh, injected or had P. vivax, they found that a lot of activity was found in the spleen. So they think that within the first week or so of infection, the spleen may be harboring a very high degree or a reservoir of the replicating 
P. vivex parasites, and they think it's due to P. vivex uh, infecting those like early red blood cells, those reticulocytes that are found in the spleen. Uh, very, very small study. I think only uh, three or four of the seven healthy volunteers who volunteered for this study uh, were infected with P. vivex, but um, still promising to see where's this thing hiding out. Uh, where are the reservoirs for the parasite throughout the body? And that could help with what diagnosis and eventual treatment. Maybe, perhaps. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's got a lot of limitations with the number of people. It's yeah. a different species. Yeah. The different species of, of malaria uh, infect different stages of red blood cells. I know Vivax does like reticulous sites, but uh, falciparum tends to not care. So it, it's usually infecting older red blood cells. So, yeah. you know, it might not be in the spleen is the point. Um, it, it's interesting, though. Uh, it's new information that we haven't had. Malaria has been around for centuries and centuries right, right, right. And we haven't been able to get rid of it so it'd be amazing if we were able to to get rid of it now well you know some some people uh try to get rid of it uh sort of on the vector end right try to control the mosquito uh, well we did that we we were successful DDT, yeah yeah <laughs> we used ddt in the US, yeah we got rid of swamps in the u.s and turned yeah yeah into... the T- the tennessee valley authority yeah. spent a lot of time yeah yeah, and that, that got rid swamps. of uh, malaria in the U.S. The only used, yeah. way you get malaria in the U.S. is traveler's malaria. But, um, okay, anything else on uh, malaria? Uh, I think, you know, what I think is, uh, you know, uh, while I, mean, I, I don't consider myself an expert on malaria anymore, it's been years since I've published a paper on it, but uh, I, I have a, a good buddy of mine that I got a Ph.D. with that uh, – is a uh, uh, professor in Ghana. He's Ghanaian. Oh, let's get I, him on the show. Yeah, and and uh, I, he works on a variety of parasites. You'd be happy. He works on Trypanosoma brucei. Oh, love trypanosomes. Yeah, and so he uh, he would uh, he'd be a good one. So I'll get a hold of him. See if uh, he'll come on and, and talk to us about what he does and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, be because uh, even though we did a quick sort of uh, uh, a summary on on malaria, I think. Uh, I mean, it's it's a topic that that perhaps deserves a full episode, right? So uh, it, we did sure. not do it justice at all. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, and uh, we're trying to conserve some time here today because we have an interview that yes. we have uh, scheduled with a, an author. Yes, and uh, well, we'll uh, save. Yeah, we'll save. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's do. So the, we'll just go to the game segment. Okay, yeah, let's do the game segment. Okay, well, we then, can do this uh, real quick. It's a short case. Uh, and then we'll, we'll do the interview after that, hopefully. Absolutely. Well, welcome to the game segment. We have a, a little scenario that we ask at the end of every episode, and uh, Rick answers every time. We'd like, <laughs> if, if our listeners and, and our viewers are, are watching and get to this part and would like to answer, please email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com with your answers and you can win some bling. That is correct. That is correct. So uh, very, very briefly for the last episode, uh, we had a, a graduate student in the summer of 2012 uh, from the University of South Georgia who was hospitalized in Augusta and then transferred to Vanderbilt for treatment of a series of wound infections after receiving a deep gash on her leg during a zip line accident that required about 20 staples to close. The wound became infected with a ubiquitous bacteria that typically does not affect immunocompetent adults. Uh, 
And this episode, the last episode's questions were what was the bacterium that infected her and how did her wound become contaminated with this pathogen? And Rick was so close. Rick, you forgot to put the bacteria in there. But Rick was correct that the patient had necrotizing fasciitis. It's not, that is a disease uh, caused by a, a number of different bacteria. And in this case, uh, the patient developed necrotizing fasciitis from a bacteria called Aeromonas hydrophila. And this is ubiquitous. It's in water. Uh, it, it, it's on vegetation. But typically, we're talking about fresh uh, standing water. And she was, I believe they were kayaking. And so most likely that gash in her leg uh, was uh, contaminated from the river water that she was in after that. Uh, the patient did survive. She uh, she had both legs amputated and both of her hands amputated, I believe. Oof. It's unfortunate. It, it is, but I, I do believe, uh, I, I didn't put her name in here. Uh, she's still alive. I believe she does um, a lot of, of outreach. And That's good. That's yes. Great. Yes. So uh, what I what I remember reading because I I was following the story a bit when it was happening, and I remember they just kept saying she's so upbeat, so upbeat about it, and so it's it's still unfortunate. Well, thank you, Rick, for uh, for almost answering it. Besides, you don't need any more bling. Okay. Very quickly, let's uh, let's get into this episode's riddle. Uh, we're sticking with 2016. Uh, in 2016, an otherwise healthy young female in her mid-20s was washing out her left eye because it was irritated when she noticed that something alive was flushed out of the eye. She was working as a deckhand on a commercial fishing boat in Oregon and saw several local doctors there who removed more worms from her eye. So worms in the eye. Ooh, she was concerned that these worms might migrate to her brain or cause her to lose her vision. Uh, a team of scientists, the CDC, eventually determined that she was infected with a species of worm that had never, ever been seen in humans before, but wow. was known to infect cattle. And so this episode's question is, what exact parasite is this? And how did she likely become infected with this worm in the eye? And if you think you know the answer to this riddle, email us at <laughs> email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. Absolutely. Uh, cool case. Yeah. Cool case. Hopefully I mean, we'll get some answers. Yeah. And to be the first infected with something or uh, at first, least identified yeah. as the first to uh, you know have that infection in humans. Yeah, and I I gathered from what I was reading that it's it's just not a human parasite. So it's not common to see that. So was it so was she's it, the first it might be only. Right. So okay, was do they think it was sort of like an accidental uh, <laughs> infection or whatever? Yeah, but clearly it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, if you think you know the answer to this riddle, email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com and uh, stick around. We have an interview coming up. And we are uh, at the segment in our podcast where uh, we interview a uh, scientist or an author and uh, interesting personality. So we have with us here today, uh, Dr. Steve Natz author of The Wisdom of the Flock, Franklin and Mesmer in Paris. Well, hey, uh, can we call you Steve? 
Yes, you can, of course. Thank All you, right, uh, Steve, yeah. uh, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure to be here. So uh, we're hoping you can uh, tell us a bit about the book and tell us a bit about Ben Franklin, the scientist, the um, medical inventor, and um, maybe you can start with a bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Uh, as you know, I'm a medical doctor. I went to medical school quite a long time ago from the, all this gray hair that I have, but uh, I practiced <laughs> for about 30 years in physical medicine and rehabilitation. So I was a physiatrist. I practiced uh, physical rehabilitation my entire career. I still do some uh, administrative consulting work, but I'm pretty much retired now. Uh, but it was a great career. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, for all of your listeners that are, you know, maybe in medical school or thinking about medical school, you can't beat medicine. It's a great profession. Fantastic. That's great. So um, why Ben Franklin? What, what got you interested in, in, in Ben? So I got interested in Ben actually in this period of time. I, I read an article and um, I think it eventually became a book uh, called Dr. Franklin's Medicine. And it was about um, Benjamin Franklin's uh, inventions, uh, things that he did that were somewhat medical in nature. But the part that really um, caught my attention and caught my interest was this time in 1776 when Franklin uh, was sent to France, to Paris, uh, as basically the, the first ambassador, if you will, uh, from the United States. Now, the um, Revolutionary War had not been uh, finished. In fact, it was still going on at that point. And Franklin was sent to France to drum up support from the French against the British during the Revolutionary uh, American Revolution. Revolutionary War. Um, and while he was there, uh, he was asked by the King of France in 1784 to form a commission uh, to investigate mesmerism. And mesmerism was a, um, a technique uh, that was performed by a Viennese doctor, Dr. Mesmer. You probably know the word mesmerized. Uh, people know right. that word and they go, well, you know, did, did Dr. Mesmer mesmerize people? Yes, he did. He kind of put them into a trance. Um, they, uh, they, they came under his spell. They felt better when he woke them up. It really was um, early hypnotism, uh, but people didn't really know that it was hypnotism at the time. Uh, but Franklin uh, was then asked to invest, investigate this practice. And in doing so, uh, what, what had happened, to take a little step back, Mesmer had claimed that there was an invisible force, kind of like you know, coming down from the stars, that he could channel uh, to, be, to be this force of healing. And, uh, you know, Franklin kind of wanted to prove, he always needed proof of things. And so he um, wanted to prove that there was no force. Franklin, as you know, had done a lot of work uh, proving that electricity was a force. Um, you know, in fact, that was something that he, that he earned his honorary doctorate degrees uh, from Harvard and Yale uh, for his work with electrical experiments. So he was a scientist and uh, he took this challenge on and they eventually proved that there was no force uh, at least nothing that was detectable. Uh, now, we all know that hypnotism actually works for some things, and we still don't really know exactly why. But um, what was interesting was how it was kind of a dynamic between science and mysticism uh, in the you know, late 1700s and in the uh, Enlightenment in France. So it was a fascinating time for me. I mean, you've got characters around like Marie Antoinette, um, you know, Casanova's hanging around, you've got Benjamin Franklin, you've got uh, John Paul Jones, you've got all these, you know, um, bigger than life characters that we know of today uh, in this era in uh, in late 1700s in France. And it just really sparked my interest. I, I spent, 
you know, the first 10 years just doing research on this particular time period and fell in love with it. So uh, I, I ended up writing a historical fiction about it. Not everything in the book is true. I made up some things, uh, but I tried to be as historically accurate as possible. So if you do read the book, you'll get a lot of a real flavor of what happened in uh, late 1700s in France. So this was a, a, a long, long time coming, right? Like you spent <laughs> yeah. a good amount of work on this. Yeah, from the time I got the idea in 2005, it just got published in January, the 2021. Now, not all of that time was I were I was working, I was, you know, in my career, of course, doing other things. And so right. uh, it wasn't something where I had, you know, full time to be able to commit to it. But yes, it took a long time. It's just, I'm fascinated by just that period in history. And just like you said, the band of eclectic characters or figures that Ben Franklin was involved with. I just, I mean, I think about what Ben Franklin could have done in the current time, you know what I mean? Like, or the influences that he had, you know, hundreds of years ago compared to now. I, I don't know, just that setting you've already sold me is what I'm trying to say. I think, well, I, I think I'm getting that book and you have to get the book. yeah. Um, so Franklin was an incredibly inventive and he was incredibly pragmatic. I mean, he really had a lot of uh, common sense. He did a lot of common that most of his inventions were, were very practical things. You know, he was a swimmer. So he invented swim fins. He, you know, found he had trouble reading. So he invented bifocal glasses. Uh, he, you know, was was one day in his home in Philadelphia, and there was smoke coming in from the fireplace. So he invented the Franklin stove, which uh, exhausted the smoke out the chimney, and you know saved you know lots of people. Uh, he invented the the lightning rod. So you know a lot of things um, you know that he did were were very utilitarian uh, you know inventions, and he never patented anything. He he gave all of his inventions up, basically published you know the specifications for them, gave them all out to humanity. So. Uh, in an altruistic way. Uh, now, some people would say he was also independently wealthy at that point from his publishing career, so he didn't really need to, uh, you know, to make money off his inventions. But, you know, the fact of the matter is he was very altruistic and, and gave a lot of these things away. Um, some of his, you, you're going to, I think, um, you may want to ask about some of his more medical inventions. Uh, and usually when I, I, I say some of these anecdotes on other uh, in other, like at a party, people cringe. They're like, oh, it's too medical. But he, he invented- <laughs> Well, not, not for us. Not here, not, we'd not we'd love to hear about the medical stuff over All here. Right. So he invented a, uh, a urinary catheter. He had a kidney stone and he invented a urinary catheter. The urinary catheter had been around since the time of the Romans. People knew about it, but they used, you know, various different type materials. What Franklin did was that he invented a urinary catheter that was interlocking silver pieces. He took, he took his design to a silversmith and he had the silversmith design this interlocking silver pieces. So it was just flexible enough to get around curves, but stiff enough to be able to get through the urethra into his bladder. And he actually designed it for his brother, but then he ultimately ended up using uh, a model himself. And because it was silver, it could easily be sterilized by just boiling. Um, and it was never really prone to, you know, cause infection. So, uh, you know, another kind of practical invention, uh, more in a medical realm. <laughs> very courageous in terms of self-testing <laughs> and the use yeah. of the catheter, because uh, I, I don't mm. think I'd have the the courage to do that. <laughs> well, if you if you had a, a bladder stone that was a calculus that was obstructing, you know, your your uh, urinary outflow, I, I bet you probably would. You yeah, if like, I guess if I was desperate enough, sure, maybe. And, exactly. and in the 1700s, right? So <laughs> right, right. You'd probably uh, resort to that. Yeah. Right. You wouldn't want to go under the knife at that point. I mean, that was that was a you know, there was no such thing as a safe surgery. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he also invented, um, a, he actually dabbled with, I wouldn't say invented, but he, he discovered a couple of interesting things. Uh, you know, you, you think about electroshock therapy. Franklin described in one of his letters where a man with, at that time they called it melancholia, um, he tried a strong electrical shock uh, applied to the man and found that, you know, in fact, that he became less depressed for a period of time. Uh, so he invented electroshock therapy centuries before anybody else even thought of it. Um, wow. He theorized that, uh, that an electrical shock could restart a heart that had stopped, uh, although he never actually tried it, to, to my knowledge. But it was one of his theories, uh, you know, again, um, predating by centuries before people thought about using uh, cardioversion uh, for you know, any type of thing like that. I mean, just so many things that I guess we don't, or the vast majority of people may not attribute to Ben Franklin, even like his early thoughts and almost like his foresight about future medical inventions. That's, that's just fascinating. It was. If you, could, if you could kind of think of one thing, I know you've already mentioned a lot of them, and I'm sure our listeners are would right now as they're listening think, wow, I never knew Ben Franklin had that idea. But I guess what is maybe the one thing that you would say the vast majority, if not a lot of people, you know, wouldn't know about Ben Franklin, the man, or, you know, another one of his inventions or anything he was involved in, you know, anything like that. I think one of the inventions that, that I was astounded by, um, I'll tell you a little anecdote of, uh, it's actually, uh, uh, it's in the book. Uh, so if you read the book, I'm sorry, it's hopefully not a spoiler, uh, but um, Franklin uh, was very, um, he was very musically inclined. He loved music, he played music, uh, and he did invent one musical instrument. He invented a musical instrument called a, a glass harmonica. What he had done is he, he had observed people playing the musical glasses. They would wet, uh, back in the day, they would wet different sizes of glasses with their finger and they would, you know, you can do this today. You can right. put your finger around a wet glass and it'll make mm -hmm. a, a musical sound. And in the day, one of the popular things to do was for the musician to go and, and take a set of these glasses and take their finger and, and go around them. But it was very painful. He actually observed a young woman um, uh, musician playing the musical glasses. And as he was, the, the story goes, as he was walking home, he thought of a different way that he could um, arrange the glasses. He actually put sequentially sized glasses on a spindle, had them bathed in a, a, a bath of water, very ingenious invention. And with a, a trendle, like you would use for an old sewing machine, he had the spindle turn so that the woman could just, and then of course they were, they were kept moist by be turning in this water bath. So she could just touch sequentially uh, each one of these glasses and develop a different musical um, tone or note. Um, the glass harmonica is actually still a musical instrument. It, it had some um, popularity with Mozart wrote some pieces for it and Haydn, uh, but then it fell out of popularity. Uh, the piano took over, um, other musical instruments kind of took over. And, but there are, there are people playing the glass harmonica that Benjamin Franklin invented today. Uh, there's a group of people, you, you look them up on the internet, look up glass harmonica, like, like a harmonica without the H. And uh, you'll see that there's a, a, an avid group of, of musicians who are playing this 300-year-old uh, musical instrument today. Wow. Yeah, those are, I, I, I just Googled that. Those are interesting looking. It's uh, much, much bigger than I thought it would be. Yes, it's a case. There's actually several of the original ones are still around. There's, um, there's one in the Bakken Museum in, in Minneapolis that, uh, that I just go and, 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 you know, 
ogle at it and say it's amazing that he made this thing you know 300 years ago or had it yeah. he designed it and had had a glassmaker make it um so that, that's something that most people don't know about franklin uh i think that you know, know it, that. It, yeah most people don't know about his time in france or, or the time before that when he was in england kind of struggling as a um uh, as the ambassador so to speak the commissioner uh for the colonies trying to get the British to be reasonable about taxes and not, you know, and that start the Revolutionary War. Um, so that, that may be my next book if I um, get the time and, and have the energy to look back at what he was doing in, in England before the time that he was in France. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I guess you've already kind of gone into the book a little bit. Um, did you want to kind of like tease the book for, you know, our listeners and, sure. you know, give a short synopsis? Uh, I guess basically uh, you've already convinced me, but for our listeners, uh, you know, why would they want to buy the book? So the, like, like you said, the reason they would want to buy the book is that it, it's interesting. It's a, a um, I think a fascinating time in history. You'll learn a lot about Franklin. You'll learn a lot about um 1700s in France, um, you know, the, the, you have the American Revolution going on in the background, uh, have a few spies thrown in there. Um, they have um, uh, people like uh, John Paul Jones, the naval captain, you have um, Casanova kind of roaming around. Um, and so I, what I created in the book was um, this dynamic. So Franklin invented the glass harmonica for a young musician, a woman by the name of Marianne Davies. Now, we don't know that they had any type of relationship, although Franklin was notoriously a ladies' man. So, um, you know, it, it is possible. And he lived away from his wife many, many years. She wouldn't travel across the ocean. And so most of his time in England and in France, uh, he was gone from America uh, more than he was here. Um, and so uh, I wrote about his relationship with Marianne Davies. And then also, it's interesting because Dr. Mesmer copied a glass harmonica in when Marianne Davies was in Vienna. So I was kind of, these are real true historical facts. And I just kind of blended everything together and made a, a love triangle out of this uh, that hopefully will you know, be very interesting to everybody as well. So uh, it covers the time from 1776 to 1784, uh, I'm sorry, 1785 when Franklin left France then to go back to uh, now America because the peace treaty had been signed. And, um, it, it's got several different themes, science versus mysticism, but then also, you know, love and uh, romance and, and so this, this whole love triangle thing going on. Uh, so hopefully it'll be entertaining to everybody. I mean, uh, it's, it's a long book. It's over 500 pages, but it covers, uh, one of the things that I found was that, um, was that I, I was in a situation where I would say, well, I've, I've got to kind of cover this whole period. It's like it starts and it stops here and, and ends there. And uh, it just seemed natural. So um, I do go into the whole uh, aspect about the commission, the experiments that they did. Uh, a lot of that is historical fact and, and was, you know, well documented. They came out with a report um, that essentially debunked mesmerism, or at least the, the presence of a, an actual force. So um, if you're interested in science, the history of medicine, they, they really did. Uh, some of the other people have, have commented that it was the first time that there was ever a blinded experiment. That was done. Oh, In fact, okay. they use they use, cool. a real, they use a real blindfold. <laughs> was at least a single blind experiment. The subject didn't know what was going on. Do, do, do you know if that's where that term blinded experiment comes from? Whether like it's actual the blindfold or sort of the concept of being blind to the uh, subject? 
I don't know, but I mean, this was, they actually did use a blindfold <laughs> when they were testing to see whether the wow. sight, the vision of seeing someone needed to be present for someone to be mesmerized. Uh, what it's, it's an, and, and we'll, we'll ask you maybe one or two more questions. We thank you for, for it, uh, carving out time uh, of your busy schedule yep. to be with us. Uh, what, what lessons and ideas should, should one take from sort of Ben's life and, and history? Oh boy. Well, um, I think the, the things that, that I learned from Ben, I learned a, a lot from Ben, but you know, mostly, uh, I, I think that, uh, never to take yourself too seriously. I think Ben, you know, really never did take himself. Uh, seriously, he he was very down to earth, uh, very humble. Uh, I think partly because he was thrown into these situations, you know, going to England, going to France, uh, where he had to kind of fit in. Um, so he made the best of those situations. He always had, uh, um, you know, a, a great sense of humor, uh, but it it was dry sometimes. I mean, and sometimes biting. Um, you know, when he he could be um, critical. Uh, he was sometimes even critical to his own family members and people have commented on that. But I think that if you, if you live your life like Franklin, that is, you know, really be humble and uh, be inventive and uh, just, you know, put yourself out there for the, for the world, then, you know, hopefully everything will come your way. Seems like too, I mean, a perfect example of never stop asking questions and never stop investigating. I mean, Right. He just was attributed to so many things. And if he wouldn't have taken the next step after, oh, I have a stone or I'm experiencing this pain, what can I do to alleviate that? I mean, I think a that's a great tube. message. What's that? A silver tube. A silver yeah. tube. Silver Why not? Yeah. yeah. His, his, um, his powers of observation and then being able to, you know, think of a solution for a common everyday problem were... Uh, were incredible. They were impressive. They they were something mm-hmm. that we should all aspire to. You're right. A great well, lesson for our uh, burgeoning undergraduate, <laughs> graduate, and medical school students for sure. Absolutely, never give up. Never give up. I like it. Yeah. Um, any other questions for our guest? No, no that was enlightening. Thank you. Yeah, yeah that was great. The, the, if I can give it a plug, the book is called the, Absolutely, the you can. The Wisdom of the Flock, Franklin and Mesmer in Paris, um, written by me. It's available on Amazon in Kindle edition, paperback, and hardcover. Uh, for the, uh, my, my, the, 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 I published it myself, it's self-published, and the, the consulting company that was helping me publish it said, nobody buys hardcover. I look, I'm a baby boomer, you know, come on, give me a hardcover <laughs> book, because I like to take a hardcover book on an airplane with me, you know. So uh, it is available in hardcover. Uh, and in paperback, and of course on the Kindle. The Kindle, of course, is the is the best seller uh, at this point. But um, it, it's available at Amazon and and other selected places, Barnes and Noble, um, you know, other selected places where you can get uh, eBooks and, and regular books. So uh, it's called the uh, Wisdom of the Flock, um, Franklin and Mesmer in Paris. Fantastic. Great. Well, uh, Dr. Thank Nance, you. thank you for your time and thank you for being here with us. We will. Uh, Make sure to put a link to the uh, book in our show notes when we uh, publish this episode. And uh, once we have it uh, all up and running, I'll uh, send you a link. Great. Yeah, because I'll, I'll uh, put it on my uh, Facebook page and, and other places where I can publicize it too. Fantastic. Thank That's you very great. much. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, guys. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Bye. Thank you, Steve. Good to meet right. you. Take care. Bye. Good to meet you too.
That's it for our show today. Uh, you can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. Just search for The Biobusters. Uh, use any podcast catcher to download our episodes. Uh, you can also listen at thebiobusters.podbean.com and you can find us on YouTube. All right. We will see you uh, next time. Bye. Thank you.